Well, once again, good morning. I'm glad you're here to worship with us. Thanks, uh, Emily and team. That was wonderful. Um, as Jane mentioned earlier, we are in the third of a three-part sermon series on our new church name. As many of you are aware, on February 2nd, which was Super Sunday, as we called it, uh, our lead pastor, Eric Hansen, revealed on our session's behalf this wonderful new vision, really, to uh, love Boulder, to love Boulder in a special way. It was also revealed that we have a new church name starting at Easter, and we're going to be called Grace Commons Church. And so a lot of us are adapting and adjusting to that and trying to get our hearts and minds around that. So Eric preached the first two Sundays on grace and commons, and grace was so pivotal, so central. Grace is, of course, that idea that God uh, reaches out to us in unmerited favor, that God is loving and uh, inclined with compassion toward us, regardless of what we've done. So often we think we need to earn God's love or somehow, uh, you know, deserve it. But that's not our God. Our God is gracious. So grace, and then we thought about the word commons. And if you've ever been to Boston, you probably know about Boston Commons. It's a big open space where people come together and share life, share resources, share concerns, share joy, share sorrows. We want to be a commons where not only do we share these things together, you and I, but we share them beyond the walls of this church. So grace, commons, and now I get to uh, help us think about church. Now, why include church in our name? It seems kind of obvious in a way, and I, I think it's probably fair to say that after uh, Easter, on Easter and going forward, we're probably going to say at the beginning of the service, good morning and welcome to Grace Commons, and church will just be implied. But our task force really had thought long and hard about this, and we believed that to include the word church was very important. We wondered if we could include perhaps different kinds of words like assembly or fellowship or community. None of those seemed right to us. Church still has a rich connotation and an important meaning. And uh, it only becomes more so the more you know about the etymology of church. When you know the root of the word church in the English language, you will see that it's a rich word. So let's consider this. Let me give you a little church, so-called history. Um, church comes from the word in Greek for Lord, kurios. And then by extrapolation, it becomes kurkon, which means the Lord's house. That's the earliest form of church we have, kurkon. Now, when it gets to German, it becomes Kirche. And when the Scottish people received the word, they called it Kirk. And of course, in English, it became church. Now, there's only one major problem with this etymology is that the church is seen primarily as a place. Primarily as a place. It's the Lord's house, as in we go to church, a place. But we know, many of us, that church is so much more than just a place. And so there's another word I want to tell you about in the Greek New Testament, and I think it's even better. It's this word, ekklesia. Ekklesia, you probably know, it's the word for ecclesiastical. Ekklesia comes in two parts. It comes with the word ek, which if you look at those red signs on the sides of the sanctuary, exit, that's based on the Greek word ek. It means out, out of. And the other word, of course, is kaleo, to call. The church is the assembly of the people who are called out by God, called out of death and into life, called out of darkness and into light. We are the assembly of God's called out ones. 
And that, I think, is a really rich way of looking at the church. So church isn't so much a place, a building. Church is a people, a people that God calls out of darkness and death and into Christ's light and life. To help us think a bit more about that, let me invite you to our text this morning. It's in Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, and let me tell you a little bit what's been going on. Luke, uh, the Gospel writer, is also the writer of the book of Acts. So he writes one major work in two parts, the Gospel and the book of Acts. Uh, In the book of Acts, the risen Jesus has appeared to his disciples, and he's told them to wait. Wait in Jerusalem. Don't go out on mission. Don't go do anything for me yet. Wait, because something's going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to be given to them. And so the apostles and the disciples are waiting in the upper room in Jerusalem, and it's the day of Pentecost. Fifty days after Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, great Jewish celebration. And the disciples are all in one place. And then Luke tells a story like this. He says, all of a sudden, there was a sound like a violent wind. He means like a tornado. And it came into the upper room, and then the next thing they knew, a fire came into the room, and it distributed itself like tongues of flame on the heads of the apostles. And then they did the strangest thing. They began to speak in unknown languages to them, languages of foreign people, and they proclaimed the deeds of the Lord. And all the people who'd gathered around them began to hear the gospel proclaimed in their language. And people don't know what to make of this. And so Peter preaches the first sermon in the book of Acts, and he tells people what this is about. It's a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, And then at the end of Peter's sermon, great sermon, uh, the the people there say, brothers, what should we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ and your sins shall be washed away. And Luke tells us 3,000 people that day were baptized, became Christians. And so now we get to our text. uh, Luke chapter 2, verse 42. Let's look at it says that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. The early church, there it is. Now what I thought I would do is I thought I would maybe pick this apart and break it down into seven marks of the early church just so they're clear to us. So let's just quickly do that. First of all, as we've just read about the early church, they were number one, they were biblical. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The apostles, of course, taught them verbally, but then later they went on to write, and their writings became largely the New Testament. The early Christians were biblical. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were a second thing. They were also relational. They devoted themselves to fellowship, and this is a great word in Greek. It's a word koinonia. Koinonia is based on the word koinos, which just means common. Sound familiar? Grace Commons. Koinonia is is fellowship, and uh, the early church was devoted to this. They devoted themselves to fellowship. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. They were relational. The next thing they were, they were sacramental. They devoted themselves to the breaking of the bread. 
This is probably a reference to the Eucharist, to the Lord's Supper, to Holy Communion. They were sacramental. They were also prayerful. They dedicated themselves to prayer. And the interesting thing about this is that if you look in the original language, it's not prayer, it's prayers. Now remember where they were. They were in Jerusalem. And they were likely going to the temple at the various times of the day where they had set prayers. In other words, liturgy. So this early church was not only prayerful, they were liturgical. They were another thing. They were charismatic. Wonders and signs were being performed in their midst. They were also generous. They had everything in common. That's again the word koinos, like grace commons. And they gave to anyone who had need. And finally, they were growing. There was great church growth in their midst. What is really interesting to me is that the early church, as Luke describes it, has all these seven marks in perfect balance. These seven attributes of the church that later in denominational history got parceled out to the different denominations. And so we have the biblical churches over here. We have the sacramental or liturgical churches over here. We have the prayer uh, gatherings and homes over here. Uh, And so it's so interesting that the early church had all these things. I think now we're ready to offer a working definition of church, the early church. Here it is. The church is the people of God. Not the place, the people, the people of God, the called out ones, the tangible, living, human expression of the risen Christ in our world today. This is the church. And to really understand the church, its origins and purposes, we need to ask what, or better, who gave birth to the church? How was the church born? Now, remember, Luke wrote the gospel, and then he wrote the book of Acts. In the gospel, we see Jesus reconstituting the people of God. Jesus calls to be with him 12 disciples. Now, why 12? Well, because there were 12 tribes of Israel. And what Jesus is doing, he's reconstituting the people of God around himself. He's the center of the fellowship. And the 12 disciples begin to be the the origins of the new people of God. And so the uh, early church is then birthed in the book of Acts by this amazing descent of the Holy Spirit in power, in, in wind and in flame. And the church is born. And some have said, it's kind of fun, some have said that uh, the tongues of fire on the heads of the disciples, those are like candles on the birthday cake of the church. And I think that's a, fine, a fun reminder. So the early church, if we could sum up, was had seven major characteristics or marks. These are the seven. They were biblical, they were relational, they were sacramental, they were prayerful, they were charismatic, they were generous, and they were growing. Now let's be honest. When you think about the church today, those seven marks don't come to mind, do they? In fact, there might be seven other marks that would characterize the the church in North America especially. It would be these seven marks. Aging, anemic, dying, irrelevant, boring, out of touch, compromised. Maybe not here and not now at First Press or Grace Commons, but this is largely what's happening in the North American, even the Western church experience, and especially in the mainline denominations. And I got a taste of this firsthand when I began my pastoral ministry in Oakland. Uh, many of you, some of you may know that I was a pastor, a head of staff of a small church in Oakland for 10 years before we came here. 
And this church reached peak membership in, the ni- in 1960, and it had 1,100 members. But when they called me in 1992 to be their pastor at age 28, they had 250 people. And my mandate was to seek the renewal and growth and expansion of that church. And so for 10 years, I poured everything I had into seeking that with the elders and leaders of that church. And it was one of those two steps forward, one step back experiences. And I learned a lot of great things, important things, and I I got to work with some amazing people, and I love that church to this day, but it has continued to shrink. And I learned this. I learned that for the aging mainline church, if you can hold your attendance and membership numbers steady, you are wildly successful. The church is struggling, especially in the West and in North America. And there are particular pitfalls that beset the church. Four things I've identified that I think can really uh, cause a pitfall for us as we seek to be the church in the 21st century. The first one is this, what I'm going to call clubby church. Clubby church was a problem in the first century, even among the early church people, because they were Jewish Christians who liked to hang out together, and there were Gentile Christians. And one of the big challenges facing the early church was how to mix them, because they were gravitating towards clubby church. Clubby church is when the church becomes a club, a clique, a social organization, or a networking opportunity, a comfortable, self-serving gathering of like-minded, similar-looking people gathered together for their own good. First Press, in its history, has been a clubby church, I think it's fair to say. For many years, we were known as kind of the country club church, actually, but I don't think that's fair to say about us any longer. I think we've changed. I think we've grown. But it can happen anywhere to a church, clubby church. A second pitfall would be what I'll call cultural church. It's where the church becomes captive to culture, particularly in politics, whether of the political left or the political right. Cultural church serves and reinforces certain political and social agendas, whether the culture wars of the right or the cultural revolution of the left. The church engages in these things and forgets the maintenance of divine worship, of fellowship, of transformation, of serving the world. Cultural church is something that really concerns me. It concerns me because not only is it a danger in our country today, but it was a danger that afflicted my father's family. Some of you may know that my dad is a German immigrant. He grew up in the 1930s and 1940s uh, under Hitler's reign in Nazi Germany. And if you know anything about the Lutheran church history in Germany under Hitler, it was the state-sponsored church that largely sold out to Hitler. And what happened is that they became so compromised, they were indistinguishable from the culture around them. And what my grandparents did is they said no to the Lutheran church, and they went underground and started having home Bible studies. And this is what shaped my dad and later went on to shape me to some extent. Cultural church is a danger. We have clubby church, we have cultural church, we have a third thing I'm going to call consumer church. This is a particular temptation to those of us in the West who are affluent. We treat church like a consumable item. We seek my kind of church, a church experience that meets my needs, where I like the music, where the preaching feeds me, and where the youth program is cool. If one church doesn't fit the bill, well, we'll simply go down the street and find a better deal. I think nothing captures it better than this video. It's funny, but it's just a little bit uncomfortable, isn't it? 
Consumer church, and the last one would be computer church, or what I'll call virtual church. It's one of our newest pitfalls. It's where we substitute the, the vital biblical human experience of life on life in a, in a human church for an online experience, where we become more focused on digitally curating our own experience online of church in our home in front of a screen. And please know that I think there's a place for this. I mean, if you are shut in or if you're sick or you've been traveling and you can't make it to this church, for example, you can now watch our sermons online. And that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. But you know what I'm talking about. It's when all of a sudden you don't want to go to church anymore. It's too messy. It's too boring. It's too whatever. And you just curate your own church. And something vital is lost in the church experience. We need to remember Hebrews 10, verse 25, where we read, Don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. I wonder which of those four pitfalls you fall prey to or which ones do we as a congregation? Uh, Which ones do I? We need to be asking that question. I need to be asking that question because we're all all prone to these temptations. You may have heard the old uh, saying that your body renews itself cellularly once every seven years. Have you heard that? Once every seven years, we're told, our bodies renew themselves. Every cell is renewed. It's pretty close to the truth. But scientists have used carbon-14 dating to look at the different cells within the body, and more or less, every seven to 10 years, from head to toe, your cells, my cells, are renewed. We're not literally the same people we were 10 years ago. Now, if you're like me, you kind of begin to wonder, well, if our cells are renewed in a regular way, why are we aging? (laughs) And the answer that that scientists tell us is because every time the cells remake themselves, something happens to the DNA inside them. There's a mutation, and there's a little bit of a compromise, a degradation in the DNA. And then what happens is we age as a result. It's true of our bodies. It's true of Christ's body, the church. We need to be renewed on a regular basis, but we need to be renewed according to a spiritual DNA that we've been looking at in the book of Acts. That's the DNA, that's the pattern. And so that is something for us to keep in mind. Let's go back to our original definition of church. The church is the people of God, not the place. The called out ones, the tangible living human expression of the risen Christ in our world today. And too often, as we've discussed, the church fails to live up to this identity. So how then can the church be renewed according to its DNA? What is to take place if this is going to work? This was the focus of my doctor of ministry work while I was serving the Oakland Church years ago. I looked at the renewal of the aging mainline church. And I studied our church in Oakland, and I read all kinds of works on church renewal. And I ran across this author, Richard Lovelace, and this was the key work. It was called The Dynamics of Spiritual Life. It was an evangelical theology of renewal. And he said this, as he studied the history of church renewal and and revival throughout the history of the church, there were three things at least that every revival was predicated on. First, repentance. Second, fresh faith. And third, protracted prayer. That God seemed to renew the church in the Holy Spirit through the power of the Holy Spirit when first there was repentance, where the church recognized they'd gone off the tracks 
and where they began to really grieve that as individuals and as a congregation, repentance. Then came fresh faith, trusting in Jesus for a new work. And then there was protracted prayer. Small groups of people praying ardently for a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. In almost every case of revitalization through hundreds of years of church history, these three things were in play. And those are important for us to know. This seems to be the way the Holy Spirit renews the church. And what's great is when this happens, the church then expresses it in two major ways. The church gathered and the church scattered. Eric talked about this last week just a little bit. The church gathered is what we're doing today, right? Church gathers when we come to this block and we go to worship and we go to Sunday school, we go to fellowship groups, training, learning, all of that. Good stuff. It's a little bit like inhaling. Inhaling all this good stuff. But you don't stop there. You need to exhale. And that's where we become the church scattered. And most of you spend your hours, the bulk of your hours, not in this place. You spend a short while in this place, but your ministry is not here. Your ministry is in the church scattered. And as a pastor, I just want to salute you for doing that. I am excited to hear what you're doing. Church scattered, think about it. Church scattered is when our retirees who are in senior living communities like Frazier or Balfour gather intentionally together to express their faith there in ministry and in fellowship together. That's the church scattered. The church scattered is when school teachers, like my wife Rupali and many of the rest of you, take seriously the needs of your students and listen for, to them and seek to show them your care and your love. That's the church scattered. The church scattered is when you as a Christian business person take seriously your call to serve and glorify Jesus in the workplace. That's the church scattered. The church scattered is when an older member of our church, a retired school teacher, Tom Geyer, who loves artwork, when Tom identifies Children's Hospital, not far from here, and takes all his art supplies in and does art with the children who are waiting treatment there. They're terrified. But he does art with them, and then they exchange paintings together, and it's a ministry. He came up with it. It's the church scattered. What are you doing? What are we doing to be the church scattered? This is where the expression of Jesus is actually its most potent. We need to be the church gathered. We then need to be the church scattered. Grace, commons, church. I like our new name. I really do. But you know, more important than the name is the identity of the church. The church renewed according to the Holy Spirit, according to its spiritual DNA. This is the most important thing. And amidst all the good things going on here in this season of our life together, let us not forget this deeper identity of the church. Let me pray for us. Lord, thanks for my brothers and sisters and for the integrity of their witness outside these walls. Thanks that they're here to be fed and encouraged and instructed. But Lord, thank you for what they're going to do the minute they leave this place. The minute they go to work or school or back to their living environments tomorrow. Help them, Lord. Be your people, the church scattered. And may you be glorified in it, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.